Uh, wanted to take up Jeter uh, in his Baptist Principles Reset. Uh, Jeter takes up on page 25 some of the responses to the pedo-baptists. Now we have laid out uh, we have laid out a case obviously not at all exhaustive not at all exhaustive but we have tried to lay out at least the basic case for why Baptists hold to uh, the requirement of a regenerate membership rather than that of our pedo-baptist brothers who who bring into their membership those who have made no profession at all, nor are, are they even capable of it, by baptizing their children. And uh, we've made a case for that. But now, Jeter takes up uh, some of the uh, further information regarding that, responses to the pedo-baptist arguments verse uh, chapter 25 uh, sorry page 25 Jeter says if there were talking about that New Testament examples of the New Testament churches that was what we covered in one lecture we covered the fact that there were that the only basis we have for our doctrine is the scripture in this case, it's the New Testament. In this specific case, we're talking about church membership, it's those early churches. And we went through, I know I went very quickly, but I ran through several references in the book of Acts showing what they did and what was said in those references. Only those things. And so, Jeter takes up and says, if there were unconverted seekers, or infants, talking now about those apostolic churches, those first churches, if there were infants in the apostolic churches, is it not strange and inexplicable that the apostle in his epistles should have taken no notice of them? How do we explain that there's no mention of that at all? in all of that record of those the establishment of those apostolic churches, they must have constituted, they must have constituted a large and important part of those churches. In other words, there must have been, surely, a lot of children among these people. How is it, if they were to be a part of the church, that there was never a single mention of Many questions must have arisen concerning the relations which they bore to the churches and the responsibilities arising from them. Here's some questions. If there were infants and young children and they were considered to be members in this new covenant church, then here's some questions. Were they members in full fellowship or just nominal? Were they entitled to partake of the Lord's Supper 
Were they subject to the discipline as other members were? Should they be formally expelled from the churches if they furnished no evidence of piety? If they cease to be members by lack of piety, at what age and under what circumstances did their membership terminate? I mean, these are all unanswerable questions. These and similar questions have greatly perplexed modern pedo-baptists. Is it possible that these difficulties should not have arisen in the primitive churches if they contain infant members? How is it to be explained that the spirit of inspiration, so full of light and love, left the churches in utter ignorance on questions so vitally affecting their interests? All these difficulties are obviated and all these questions are explained in a spiritual, that is a regenerate church membership. The primitive churches were composed of believers and the believers only, and all the facts recorded in the inspired history and all the instructions in the inspired epistles are in perfect harmony with this fundamental principle of church organization. That is, that it is composed of only regenerate believers who have made a credible profession of faith. I know Luke went to college with a young man that was a very good friend who's Pentecostal. At his church, as best I remember back at that time, you could talk to him about it, they were struggling with these very questions, some of these questions about uh, if you have Pentecostal, do you have Pedo communion. Do you have? You know, how do you? How do you work all this out? How do you answer all these questions Jesus posed? Where are you going to find answers? Because you're certainly not going to find them in the New Testament. And Jeter's case here is simply that if they were intended to be in the church, uh, surely the Spirit of God would have given instruction about how this was to be worked out. And we have no instruction because they were never intended to be. I wanted to read as well today uh, from Francis Wayland, and I certainly do not promote or support Francis Wayland uh, theologically, doctor, etc. But he uh, produced a book called Notes on the principles and practices of Baptist churches. Uh, this was originally published in 1857. As I said, I don't stand shoulder to shoulder with Wayland as a theologian, but he has uh, dealt quite well with, uh, in some measure, with this uh, subject of uh, regenerate baptism. And he says this, under the chapter where he undertakes to speak to infant baptism. He says this, For these reasons, we that we could say this, uh, these reasons being all those that I've already given you in the previous lecture concerning the, the evidence of the New Testament, the evidence of the book of Acts, the absence of anything taught on or for uh, infants, 
in evidence of all these reasons, we feel ourselves bound to decline all semblances of infant baptism and to bear our testimony against it soberly but firmly as an innovation upon the doctrines and example of Christ and his apostles. If it be said that this is in, intended as a consecration of the child to God, now we have all seen, certainly I did, as a Southern Baptist, we have our Baptist form of infant baptism. We bring the child up and there's some kind of little dedicatory prayer and a consecration. I, I'm certainly not criticizing committing and consecrating our children to the Lord. Uh, I think that's appropriate and, and a place for that, but we have to be very careful that in doing something like that, we're not conveying to the parent that this child stands somehow in a better stead than other sinners. That has to be very careful. And he said, if it be said that this is intended as a consecration to the child of God, that uh, to the child of the child to God, that is infant baptism, a manifest duty of pious parents, surely. We reply, it is undoubtedly the duty of every pious parent to consecrate himself, his children, and all that he has to God. This is well. But what has this to do with baptism? Suppose this done, what should prevent the person so baptized as an act of his parents from being afterwards baptized if ever he professed faith as an act of his own? The two acts are essentially different in character and surely without a special command. The one should never be substituted for the other. That is, a baptism performed at the request of the parents should never be substituted as a baptism from their own request in obedience to Christ. Suppose then this were the ground for the baptism of infants. It has no connection, whatever, to the baptism of adults. And yet more, we ask, who has required this at our hands? Where in the scriptures is this consecration, that is involving baptism, a general duty applying to everything as well as children in any manner associated with the ordinance of baptism? The formula is, here's what they say, I baptize thee, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is understood by all evangelical Christians to mean, in the case of adults, it is just what we understand by it, that it's adults. But in the case of children, our brethren of other denominations understand it to mean, I consecrate this child to God, as I do everything else that God has given me. Can the same words be intended by the Holy Spirit to mean ideas so essentially different? How can you baptize this child in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? If you mean by doing that to be saying, I consecrate this child to the Lord, he's saying there's an incongruity here 
You can't use the formula, which we know to be the apostolic formula for baptism. You can't use that for the child. Were there two distinct ordinances in the New Testament? Would there not have been two different formulas for these baptisms? The answer is obvious. But we are told that we ought to baptize our children because baptism came in the room of circumcision. Now here's the second argument. The first argument is, look, this is just a consecration. We're consecrating the child to the Lord. Well, he explodes that by the fact that there's no New Testament formula for that. Okay? That is associated with baptism. So here's the second argument they bring. Well, they say, baptism is the New Testament expression of that Old Testament ordinance of circumcision. The Lord did away with the cutting of the flesh and he now has instituted baptism for the child. To this we reply, we do not find this asserted in the New Testament. There's no place it says, look, circumcision is done away and baptism now stands in the place of it. We see no ground for even an inference that this is the case. And even were there ground for an inference, we dare not, on our inference, command a precept of Christ what he has never commanded. The worst corruptions of the Romish church are founded on precisely such inferences. We can't build doctrine on an inference. Especially not an ordinance. We have to have a specific divine command as we do with the Lord's Supper and as we do with believers' baptism. We have biblical, clear, apostolic instruction to do this. We have no such instruction for the infant. We as Protestants hold this with some of us would. Our toenails curl up when you call us Protestants. But anyway, Whalen says, we as Protestants hold this to be a sufficient reason why we cannot conform to the opinions and practice of our brethren in other denominations. But we go further. If baptism took the place of circumcision, it must have taken that place either in a physical or spiritual sense. If in the physical sense, it must follow the same laws then. I remember when I was confronted with this with my dear Presbyterian brother in Ireland. This was one of the first things I confronted him with. If you'll remember, and I won't go through all this argument here, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. If you remember, the ordinance of circumcision for the Old Testament Jew was in the first place, it was for only the male. Not females. So you dare not build your doctrine on saying, oh, well, baptism is just the New Testament expression of the covenant, just like circumcision was. They use the term in the Westminster Confession, sign and seal. 
They say baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant, where circumcision was the sign and seal of the old covenant. Well, in the first place, that only applied to the males. It didn't even apply to females. So if they're going to be consistent, they're going to stop baptizing female infants because that doesn't work. That's, that's a misrepresentation. Thus, every Hebrew was commanded to circumcise a child and every Christian parent, it is said, in the same manner, is commanded to baptize his children. But the child was thus circumcised was at once a member of the Jewish church and entitled to all of its ordinances. The church of the Old Testament was a hereditary church. It followed directly in the line of the blood. If this then, if, if then, if in this sense baptism came in the room of circumcision, then the church of Christ is an hereditary church. All the children of the members of the church and their descendants forever are members of the church. If it be said that baptism takes the place of the Abrahamic covenant, we reply in the same manner. If it's governed by the same law, then not only a uh, not not only a Christian's children, but all the males in his family must be baptized. You get it? <laughs> if this is a perpetuation of the of the rights of the R-I-T-E-S, rights of the Abrahamic covenant, then it's going to have to be applied not just to the males, I mean, not just to the children of the believer, but to all in their household. That's how it was applied to Abraham. Every true believer is a child of Abraham, and for this cause, entitled to baptism. Every true believer. He said this either a physical sense or a spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, every child of Abraham is entitled to baptism. In the spiritual, if you're a spiritual child of Abraham, then you're entitled to baptism, of course. The ground on which the argument for infant baptism is frequently founded is, as it seems to us, large enough to sustain the doctrine of extreme unction, the various orders of the priesthood, the confession booth, the most corrupt errors of the Catholic Church. If you're going to start applying baptism as the replacement function of circumcision in the Old Covenant, then to build that argument builds a foundation that can justify Everything that the Roman Catholic Church does. Not just baptism, but everything else. Because of the foundation you built. Then he says, finally, we seriously believe that the general tendency to hereditary church membership has been the great curse of the Christian church. When we first moved to this community 30 something years ago, I found myself making friends that proved to be lasting friends, lasting friendship with some of the local 
old men, farmers. And they were members of a Presbyterian church. And they had a pastor for some few years whom I had a great deal of personal respect for him. His life, his family, his testimony. He was Presbyterian. And when I finally was able to engage him on this topic of the, the matter of giving, uh, the, the fact that infant baptism essentially teaches and the Westminster Confession specifically says that that baptism doth impart grace, the grace of the covenant of redemption. When I said that to him, he blatantly denied it. He said it is nobody, he said nobody believes that you're saved because you had that baptism. And my response to him was, I will prove you wrong. So I set about to move in among those men that I have personal relationship with. Deacons and officers in that church. And I asked them specifically, do you believe that when you have baptized infants, the child is saved or guaranteed that they will be? To the man, they everyone said, yes. Yes, absolutely. That's why it's so important that we do it. So I went back to him and I said, you need to talk to your own people. Okay. Because whatever you may say in your study, the people in the pew in front of you believe that salvation is imparted with this baptism. And if you don't think so, you need to ask them, because I did. And that's what they said. Wayland says, we seriously believe that the general tendency to hereditary membership has been the great curse of the Christian church. This has laid the foundation of established churches and national churches and its universal result must be in only a few generations to break down all distinctions between the church and the world. That's inevitable. It's inevitable. If you practice this, you're baptizing the world and bringing them in the church. And so there can be no distinction between the church and the world eventually. We believe, says Whaler, in a spiritual church. We would exclude from it everything that does not worship God in spirit and in truth. The reason why infant baptism in this country does not work out these results is, in my opinion, he says, that the principles on which the practice is founded are not carried to their legitimate consequence. You agree with that? You historians, you agree with that? The fact that the principles on which this nation is founded, by definition, will not allow for this practice to go where it would go and has gone in countries where it was not hindered by Baptist principles. 
any nation that has not had Baptist principles set out and defended will result in a national church because that's what it teaches. We think our brethren are in these respects inconsistent with themselves. We rejoice that they are so, for it is infinitely better to be inconsistent in doing right than consistent in doing wrong. <laughs> Do you agree with that? <laughs> it is better to be inconsistent in doing right than consistent in doing wrong. Whatever you think about that philosophically, the fact is he's saying, thank God we're living in a nation whose founding principles will not allow this thing to have its way. Because if it did, you'd have a national church. So he says, such are some of our reasons for differing from our brethren. We baptize by immersion because we believe it's commanded. We do not baptize infants because we find such an order as neither example or commanded. Still further in the case of infants, as neither of the manner in the manner of the act, nor the spiritual exercises essential to the act, as we understand it, are present. None of those things are present. We do not perceive how we can recognize such an act as the baptism of the New Testament. Now, we have Baptist churches, by the way, who do accept into membership those who have a credible profession but have never been biblically baptized. The first quote, Reformed Baptist Church that existed in Fayette County had an elder while they publicly ascribed the 1689 Second London Confession, they had an elder who had never been biblically baptized, neither his wife, himself, nor his wife, nor their children, and they were told on his coming into that office that their children would not be baptized if they made a profession. That was a Reformed Baptist church in the avant-garde of Reformed Baptist churches in their day. For this reason, we were formally designated Anna. Baptists. We baptize those who have been sprinkled in infancy because we do not consider them to have been baptized. We consider ourselves not to baptize again. That's what the word Anabaptist means, rebaptizers. He says we don't we don't call ourselves rebaptizers. But to baptize those who have never yet submitted themselves to the ordinance. We're not rebaptizing because that first thing was not a baptism, biblically. So, with respect to restricted communion, the doctrine held by most Baptists in this country, we, with most other denominations, believe that a person must be baptized before he's admitted to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. If then we do not admit to the Lord's table those who we do not believe to be baptized, we do precisely the same as our brethren who differ from us. The question may yet be raised among us all whether this is a true limit to communion. Of other Christian denominations, it is a general question 
in which we are no more interested than others. So, baptism of infants. Pedo-baptism brings into the church the world. It has absolutely no example or admonition or, or a command in the New Testament structure, in the Acts, in the Epistles, in the Apostolic Instruction. There is none. And it baptizes the world into the church. So we as Baptists, I've shown you the scriptures, I've shown you the arguments, I've shown you answers to their arguments on this topic of a regenerate church membership. That's what we, that's what we desire. That is a Baptist distinctive. Alright? Questions and comments? There are certainly, we certainly see that there are types and antitypes in the Old Testament. Yes. Uh, whereas we would see the type of circumcision fulfilled in the perfect antitype of the circumcision part, we pay a baptism baptism. But it certainly uh, would be a fair argument to consider on Hebrews' point there. You look at the whole motif of the book of Hebrews. And that if the first I think his point in summary is, uh, Brother Jacob's point in summary is that if you, if the first covenant was deemed, and it is by the apostle deemed faulty, that first covenant, and it had so much intricate detail, then from their point of view, we can say how much more faulty must this New Testament, New Covenant be, that has doesn't even have any detail, doesn't even provide us any specifics for these things. And of course, the obvious response is, the right response is that these things are not, in fact, ordinances. And therefore, we have to make no answer for them because they're they're not they're not or they're not ordained anyway. They're not part of this new covenant. That is these washings and these baptisms of infants and so forth. 
And I did mention in one message, I flew past it, I knew that, but I did mention, uh, you can read several other people, you know, uh, there were all kinds of baptisms in the Old Testament. It wasn't just <laughs> circumcision of, of the child, but if you take up the subject of baptisms, which in the Old Testament economy was washings, there were multiple washings in the Old Testament, none of which we still practice. Now, some Baptist brethren do practice foot washing, and I, for one, am completely in favor of observing that, but not as an ordinance. It is not an ordinance of the church. Most those who practice it say it is. It was never instituted as an ordinance. It may be done as a practice, but it is not to be counted as an ordinance. But there were a number of washings in the Old Testament, none of which we practice anymore. They were under that old covenant. All right, any other questions, comments? Of course, just as a reminder, Dr. Baldwin deals with all of these topics in great length and detail of his works, multiple works, specifically with baptism and the atonement. And of course, he points out rightly that what all of our Pseudo Baptist friends are attempting to do is drive the new covenant back into the covenant of circumcision. Yeah. And make the two equal things. Yes. And, and of course, they're not. Mm-hmm. And that is the underlying foundation of the book is proving again and again that these are not equal things. As much from the statements of Pale Baptists themselves as from exposition of scripture. But he, uh, he makes the point in dealing with uh, one of his opponents, Peter Edwards, uh, who was a former Baptist who turned to Pale Baptism, wrote a book on the subject of Pale Baptism and why it was legitimate uh, act for it. For the church, he concludes by saying, Mr. Mr. Edwards finds in this uh, covenant of circumcision a strange elastic quality. Yeah. He said it's, it's, it doesn't stretch so far as it does in the covenant of circumcision, which would have included household and servant. Yeah. But it's, it doesn't, it's not so narrow that it only takes in male children of the descendants of Abraham. Yeah. All in all, it's just right yeah. that it, it, it stretches far enough that it now includes the baptism of both male and, and female infants of church members. Yeah, of church members, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I said it once before and I'll say it again for the sake of the tape. Anyone who really, really sincerely wants to understand this doctrine and, and, and get it right biblically, I have three words for them. Baldwin on baptism. <laughs> it's the title of the book. Baldwin on baptism. Never has anyone supplied any 
rebuttal to that treatment, Baldwin on baptism.